This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my Intuitive Eating online course. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 190 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with fellow author and podcaster Caroline Dooner for her third appearance on the pod. We are talking about her new book, The Fuck It Diet, Eating Should Be Easy, why mental deprivation is just as much of a problem as physical deprivation, why people often treat intuitive eating as another diet and why that is wrong, the essential role of rest in healing our relationship with movement, why focusing on fullness can be problematic, and so much more. It's such a good conversation, and I just want to give a quick trigger warning for Caroline's book, which has some weight and calorie numbers and O words, but which is a great read, a great resource for overcoming diet culture if you're in the place to read those kinds of details. And of course, we don't have any of those details in this conversation, which I can't wait to share with you in just a moment. It's great. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Michelle, who writes, Hi, Christy. First of all, I wanted to say that I love your podcast and I'm so grateful it has come into my life. Your messages about intuitive eating and health at every size have improved the way I practice and discuss these topics with clients. Thank you for all of your hard work spreading the health at every size message and for your progressive thinking. I'm currently working as a registered dietitian in an outpatient eating disorder clinic in Canada. Our program is very much group-based due to the lack of resources and government funding in the area. I'm currently struggling with one of the groups we offer, which is solely for those diagnosed with binge eating disorder. The group uses a cognitive behavioral therapy model to help clients make nutrition and psychological changes. The first few sessions of the group involve psychoeducation relating to eating disorders, including research demonstrating the failure rate of dieting. The manual presents different paths for clients to choose from for the remainder of the sessions. These options include A, working towards preventing binge eating with a healthy living slash food permission approach, B, talking to their doctor about medications for binge eating, C, talking to their doctor about bariatric surgery once they have managed to stop binge eating, or D, a weight loss option which acknowledges the difficulties in actually losing weight and keeping it off long term. It also acknowledges that this journey will not result in large amounts of weight loss and could trigger worsened binge eating. I struggle with some of the topics in this BED manual, and I'm wondering if some of the messaging is more harmful than helpful. The manual very much encourages clients to choose the healthy living slash food permission option, but also outlines the current research behind the other choices. I understand that clients are exposed to diet talk and hear about medications and bariatric surgery naturally in diet culture and have a right to choose a different path than intuitive eating. It also makes sense that clients deserve to know the research on topics including bariatric surgery, medications, weight loss, and exercise. However, I'm wondering if presenting the research behind these other options and allowing them to choose the other options in a group setting goes against the health at every size model. 
but I do want my clients to feel empowered in making their own decisions in recovery. What are your thoughts on binge eating disorder group programming like this and what might you teach differently? So thanks, Michelle, for that great question. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So yeah, this is an excellent question, and I think it is so tricky, but you're totally right to be struggling with this particular treatment manual. It sounds like all of the options it's offering are steeped in diet culture, including even calling the intuitive eating model, quote-unquote, healthy living, because of course, the concept of quote-unquote healthy is very steeped in diet culture and this healthest sort of moment that we're having in this culture where diets have now gone underground or going under the guise of health and wellness rather than under the guise of just straight up diets. So it sounds like maybe that sort of wellness diety rhetoric is even creeping into the intuitive eating part of this manual. But also it sounds like all of the other choices and sort of offering them as quote unquote choices is really problematic. And I was just talking with some colleagues at um, the Academy for Eating Disorders Conference, which is happening as I'm recording this. And we're talking about how cognitive behavioral therapy and other therapy methods too are sadly getting twisted in the service of diet culture and being used for weight loss when of course that doesn't work like any other diet and it just it is another diet to try to be using a therapeutic model for intentional weight loss purposes but at their roots these treatment philosophies including CBT are totally weight neutral interventions and could actually work really well with health at every size or haze so haze does not view bariatric surgery or weight loss medications or any other intentional weight loss methods as viable options. And in the Hayes model, we don't introduce those options to people in our work. We introduce different options. We show them the path of weight-inclusive wellness, and we talk about weight-inclusive options as the ones that we want to help them facilitate. So it's one thing to have someone come in asking about surgery or asking about weight loss and to talk to the person honestly at that point or even in a group setting if someone brings up that question. You know, it's important to answer those questions, right? It's important to tell them what the research actually says, have an honest discussion about it. And there's actually no intentional weight loss method with permanent results. That's what you can say. That's the research that you can really highlight in these discussions, right? Because not even bariatric surgery is a permanent weight loss method. It has significant rates of weight regain for the majority of people too. And there are serious risks to all forms of intentional weight loss, especially bariatric surgery, because bariatric surgery carries all kinds of physical and mental health complications with it. But any form of intentional weight loss carries certain complications too, like the risk of weight cycling and perpetuating weight stigma, which have been shown to be independently associated with negative health outcomes and are an independent risk to people's health. So you you know, you can talk about all that stuff, of course, if those questions come up. And of course, once they're informed about all this evidence, it's their choice what to do with their bodies from there. It's their choice what to, how to proceed. But that's one thing, right, is like answering people's questions and having honest discussions when that's on their mind. But it's another thing altogether to plant the seed in their mind, right? To basically bring up the discussion yourself. And presenting weight loss or bariatric surgery or medication as potential options is really problematic. Like just even sort of showing them like, hey, here's one thing that people do and let's talk about the pros and cons of this. Like that's really problematic because even if you present it in the most neutral way possible, even if you 
talk about the research against it and the benefits of intuitive eating and things like that. If you're still just offering this as an option, if you're bringing it up to the client as like, hey, here's one potential path that you could take, that is a tacit endorsement of intentional weight loss. So even if you don't intend it that way, remember that we all grew up in diet culture and we're all constantly bombarded with diet culture messages, you know, messages that smaller bodies are better and that weight loss is the path to health and all this bullshit, right? And in general, people in larger bodies are even more subjected to those problematic diet culture beliefs and ideas than people in smaller bodies. So even if you think you're just presenting, quote unquote, the facts in a neutral way, just the mere offering of information about weight loss as an option and saying like, here are several options on the table for you to try. You know, I would not pick this one. Don't pick this one. But they're here on the table. You know, even just putting them on the table adds fuel to the diet culture fire for anyone who's struggling with binge eating, even just presenting those as options because it feeds that diet culture fire that's already burning. You know, it's kind of like throwing lighter fluid on. On this fire that you're hoping to get to die down, right? If you want the diet culture fire to die down for the people you're working with so that they can make peace with food in their bodies, telling them like, oh, hey, weight loss is an option is like dousing that fire in lighter fluid and it's going to it's gonna flame back up. And so that's why on this podcast, I have a very sort of specific editorial approach to who I talk to as guests. I never have anyone on as a guest who's opposed to the health at every size approach or who's offering diet culture methods like the wellness diet or even hints of the wellness diet. And that is very deliberate, you know, and I've had quite a few requests over the years from listeners for me to do some episodes where I debate someone with diet culture views. But I have refused to do that because even if it were helpful for some people to hear, quote unquote, both sides in one place so that they could theoretically either learn how to respond to those arguments and or make an informed choice about which path to take in practice, that's not really what would happen. In practice, even just having someone on the show who's presenting the diet culture side, even if I'm framing it as like I'm debating this person and I'm right or whatever, even just having them on the show would be giving them airtime and a tacit endorsement from me. And they already get more than enough of that in diet culture. So I do do debates occasionally in my speaking gigs, but these debates are geared towards health and wellness professionals usually who are already entrenched in diet culture. And the debates are usually on diet culture's turf. So like the debate I did at the 2018 FENCI conference, Food and Nutrition Conference and Expo for Dietitians, was put on by the Weight Management Dietetic Practice Group, which is like going into the belly of the beast, you know? So I saw it as really me going to their house to shake things up and disrupt the status quo and bring a much needed point of view to their audience, not giving them a free platform in my house, which I would never do because my house is a diet culture free zone. And so I want this podcast and my literal actual house for that matter to be a protected space away from the fat phobia and food shaming that goes on in the larger world where people can learn a new paradigm and develop resilience and start to challenge those diet culture messages in a safe environment without having to deal with any immediate threats from diet culture while you're here. You know, this is not a horror movie. The calls are not coming from inside the house, right? You're safe here. Nobody's going to attack you here. No diet culture stuff is going to pop out at you and do a jump scare. And I really think that should be the case for eating disorder treatment too. People are, yes, going to have to go back out into the world and face diet culture at every turn, of course, but eating disorder treatment should be a refuge from that. 
It should be a safe space where people can go to learn how to challenge the diet culture thoughts and practice relating to food in their bodies in an intuitive and self-caring way. And yes, you know, push back against those thoughts as they come up, but not implant those thoughts in people's mind to begin with. So eating disorder treatment should not have the diet culture calls coming from inside the house because then it's not really effective because we have tons of evidence actually that advocating weight loss just reinforces weight stigma and disordered eating, even if it's done in a seemingly kind and gentle way. And conversely, people have lower levels of disordered eating and better rates of eating disorder recovery when they're allowed to eat intuitively and not be pushed to lose weight. So if you want to dig into that evidence, you can check out my page with Health at Every Size resources for health and wellness professionals. It's at christyharrison.com slash haze. That's christyharrison.com slash H-A-E-S. And then for more on how weight stigma and weight cycling harm people and raise their risk of not only disordered eating, but also lots of other negative physical and mental health outcomes, you can check out my slides from that Fancy conference that I mentioned, which are at christyharrison.com slash fancy2018. That's christyharrison.com com slash FNCE2018. And just a trigger warning for one weight number in those slides, which is just meant to show health and wellness professionals how minuscule of an amount of weight is lost with even the most supposedly effective weight loss interventions. So for you, Michelle, who asked the question, I think there's definitely a decision to make here. You're kind of at a crossroads. And your intuition already picked up on the fact that there is a problem with this treatment approach to binge eating disorder. And, you know, you're already having some reservations, which is why you asked the question. So now I think you can do one of several things. You could push your organization to make change and get more aligned with health at every size and maybe adopt a treatment manual that is better, like, for example, Shaviz Turner and Amy Pershing's new book on binge eating disorder, for example, and use that as a basis to guide your workshops and, and your work with clients. You could also stop using that manual and just teach it your own way and just kind of blaze your own trail on your own, not necessarily having the whole organization do it, but your groups will be haze aligned and, you know, maybe talk to your bosses about that or maybe, maybe not, maybe ask for forgiveness, not for permission. I don't know. You sort of have to suss out what the environment, what the culture is like at the workplace and see if that might resonate with you or make sense for you. But then you could also, you know, if you're getting pushback from them, if you try to push the organization to make change and get more haze aligned and try to show like why it's a problem to even talk to people about weight loss or to introduce that idea in your binge eating disorder groups, you could leave, you know, you could find another job somewhere else that has a more haze aligned approach to eating disorders. And those places definitely are out there. They're a lot more few and far between, but I think they're becoming more and more of a thing. And there's really people out there pushing for change in in all kinds of big national and multinational eating disorder treatment centers. So it's it's pretty positive to see that change. It's also, there's plenty of treatment centers out there that are pushing weight loss too. So it's a mixed bag, but there are places out there that you could find maybe a more haze aligned way to work. Or you can go out on your own in private practice if, if you don't find something that is convenient to you and doable in your area. You can start a private practice where you can do exactly what you want and have haze be at the center of everything that you offer. So I know that is a tough position to be in. And I know all of these options are sort of take a little more work on your part instead of just maintaining the status quo. But it sounds like you really are aware that something isn't sitting right with you already in this way that you're treating binge eating disorder at this treatment center. And 
you're ready for something to change. So I'm sending lots of compassion your way and lots of strength as you work to challenge the status quo and bring more haze into your work, whatever that ends up looking like for you. So if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want to ask me any question you want and have me answer it a lot more quickly than I can here, join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. When you sign up, not only do you get a wealth of audio and written content teaching you the principles of intuitive eating in depth, but you also get an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast where you can ask your own questions and listen to hundreds of answers I've given to other participants already so that you can work through all kinds of different sticking points in intuitive eating and really put it into practice in your own life. You'll also get access to our private Facebook group exclusively for course participants so that you can have real-time guidance from me and my team, as well as hundreds of other great folks who are on this intuitive eating path. A participant named Samantha Brown recently shared this on her public Facebook page in a post about resources to learn more about body positivity. She said, a word on books about intuitive eating. I don't recommend them because intuitive eating has morphed too much into the realm of the wellness diet. I do practice intuitive eating and it has changed and healed my life, but I did it through Christy Harrison's Intuitive Eating Fundamentals online course. All of my other recommendations are free with internet access or library membership, and this is the one paid program I recommend because it is that good and you get lifetime access to her ever-evolving materials. I love getting feedback like that about the course, and it really is ever-evolving because, as I mentioned last episode, I'm getting ready to release a big update to the materials in just a couple months since I've now been teaching this course for three years. So now is a great time to join because you'll get all the content that people are loving now, plus free access to all the updates to the course as soon as they're released. If you're ready to become an intuitive eater and break free from diet culture once and for all, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my friend Katie Dale Bout's Let a Podcast Out course. If you've ever wanted to start a podcast of your own, this is the course for you. This comprehensive workshop is designed to answer every question you have about the logistics of podcasting so that you can focus your energy on crafting the best content. And the workshop has over 100 hours of interviews with top podcasters about their shows, including yours truly. So if you have ever wanted to ask me any questions about how I got started and the tools and resources I recommend for podcasting, this is the place to do it. Katie also offers an incredible wealth of detailed information teaching you how to hone in on your concept and idea for a podcast, how to develop your voice, the art of interviewing, and best practices for guest outreach, show marketing, and monetization. To learn more and sign up, go to letapodcastout.club and use offer code FOODPSYCH at checkout for $25 off. That's letapodcastout.club, C-L-U-B, and use the code F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H at checkout. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Caroline Dooner. So Caroline, welcome back to the show. Oh my God, Christy. Thank you for having me back. I can't Ah. believe it's been three years, right? Is that what we said? It's been three years. Yeah. Yeah. Since the first time we talked on the podcast. And actually, it's probably been almost four years since the first time we talked on the podcast and three years since the second time by the time this comes out. So that is a long time. A A long time. I feel like a lot has changed for both of us. I know. Yeah. So catch us up for what's been going on with you in those Three to four years. Who knows? This, this, okay. these, Who even knows? this amazingly long <laughs> period. Numbers, Christy. <laughs> right. That's true. I should bleep those. I should just bleep those out. <laughs> um, well, I 
personally, I've moved from New York. I was in New York with you and we did those live podcast episodes, but I'd actually forgotten that the first one was live until you just reminded me um, before we started recording. But I lived in New York and I love, love New York. I will always love New York, but I moved back to Philly where I'm from and my life is just a little bit easier and a little bit slower And I have a house that I wouldn't have in New York. So that's been a really nice change to kind of let myself slow down and take some of my own advice and not feel like I'm in a rat race. And I was also an actor in New York, which was its own level of stress always. And sort of actually stepping away from that kind of formally has been really nice, actually. And I do act a little bit in Philly and I always have, but I just feel like I've taken a lot of pressure off of myself and it feels, it feels right. Um, So that's one of the big changes for me. That's awesome. I'm so jealous of your calmer life in Philly, I guess, because I definitely feel ready to leave New York. It's, it's time. It is so, so exhausting. It's really exhausting. And I actually didn't visit for a year. I like, I had plenty of opportunities. I have friends that are still up there. And I was like, no, I I just, I can't, (laughs) I can't get on the train. I just can't do it. It was like a very extreme need to kind of hibernate. I get it though. Yeah. And, and the fear in that is always like, oh my God, am I going to be like a recluse for the rest of my life? And the answer is no, it's almost the same thing that happens with food, I've found that if you really allow yourself to take the heal, the time to heal and kind of listen to what you need, there is always a new phase. Like it's nothing is, is permanent and you really can kind of like follow your instincts there. Yeah. You had your, your two years of rest, right? Like that was, that was part of that. That was all part of it. That was all part of it. And that was like, I, I used to call that like the fuck a diet 2.0. My original fuck it diet that I write and talk about all the time was my kind of revelation about dieting and how my relationship with food and my obsession with eating a small amount and being skinnier was not working. And, you know, we can, we both elaborate on that extensively, but the next kind of revelation that I had was that I was doing the same thing with every other area of my life. I was I was putting this pressure on myself to be productive and responsible in a million other ways. And so I had this radical idea that I was going to it wasn't easy and of course I, you know, life happened and I, I had to like do things. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> but in general I was going to at least have the intention to become really, really aware of the pressure that I put on myself and the stress that I had about not doing things right and getting somewhere and getting further along and being successful and kind of shun that and do my best to be really kind to myself and and kind of let those things go. And I said two years just because that it felt like a doable chunk of time that was significant but also at the same time, I've taken that intention and that like that desire to be easy on myself and and be aware of the, the kind of like subconscious shoulds that I put on myself. I, and I'm going to take that into the rest of my life. But basically, I was 28 when I 
declared that I was going on two years of rest and I was going to just say no to everything I wanted to say no to. And the idea was when I turned 30, that, you know, that big mile marker that everyone's like, you should have to do all these things by 30. I was like, no, in the next two years before I become 30, I don't have to be any further along than I am right now. And that was always my intention. And of course, I forgot at times during those two years and I would get stressed about things and feel like I wasn't doing things right. But my intention was to just kind of like ease up. And it's kind of amazing how that plays out, right? Because when you ease up, it really does create space in your life for things to come in that you might have been striving so hard for. Exactly. I mean, I'm thinking like I did actually a similar thing with dating when I was God, what I think I was like 32 at the time. And so that was like, you know, the fact that I wasn't already married and settled down and stuff was like anathema to some, you know, certain members of my extended family, not so oh, much yeah. direct pressure from parents or anything. But, you know, there's there are certainly people around me who are like, what are you doing? Or why aren't you with who's the special someone in your life? Oh, isn't it sad? You know, all yep. oh, oh, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's terrible. And so I I did a very intentional thing too. It was like, you know, I have been spinning my wheels and sort of dating the same, like I've, I've had the same pattern of like either dating really unavailable people, emotionally unavailable people and trying to fix them or being the sort of emotionally unavailable one myself and not being that into the guys I'm dating. And so, you know, I'm just going to take myself out of this. And for my intention was six months. It ended up being nine months. I just didn't date and people were like, you know, looking at me like I had two heads and it was it was really hard with certain people in my life and other people really applauded it. And I felt great about it because I was just like, oh, thank God I'm not having to deal with all this bullshit, which is oh yeah, what the dating world really is. And when I came back into it, I just felt like I had so much more space and understanding and awareness of what I was really looking for. And the first guy I dated after coming back from that was horrible. <laughs> like just a, right. just a disaster. Broke up with me via text. I was so oh mad. My God. Like the worst. Just a terrible person. And so then I was like, well, that sucks. I'm going to go ahead and go back to not dating anyone again for an indefinite period of time. And like two weeks later, I met my husband, my now yes. husband. <laughs> so I was like, okay. <laughs> I love that. I mean, my two years of rest was definitely also dating. I mean, a huge like subconscious, like I tell myself like, oh, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. But the like subconscious cultural pressure that I have always felt around not being settled down was one of the big reasons I wanted to go on two years of rest. And of course, the funny thing is then you you're like part of you is like, oh, but is it going to be this movie thing where I like swear it off and then immediately it happens, like trying to play the paradox. But no, I totally, totally get it. It's all about the, I mean, it's all about the, like these subconscious beliefs that, that are running the show and making us miserable from the background. That's like this constant theme. I, I keep realizing how many more beliefs I have that I need to let go of. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I think the the intention of like, I mean, really what it is, is like setting boundaries, right? It's like a way to set boundaries for yourself and say no to certain things that are 
problematic or putting too much pressure on you. But I think the minute you set a boundary, you have to come up against like, do I deserve to set this boundary? What does it mean that I'm setting this boundary? Can I enforce this boundary and have other people still love me? Like all of the stuff, right? It's just... Yeah. What does this mean about me? All that stuff. But then, I mean, the flip side of this whole thing is that you talked about the space that it opens up to like allow yourself to actually say no to things and take a break. I mean, during those two years, I moved cities. I bought a house. I wrote a book and got a book deal and worked on the book. It's like all the stuff, right? All the (laughs) stuff that I, yeah, exactly. And those, I mean, those things were, were not rest, but they were the things that I wanted to be doing and were supposed to be doing. And I had the space for it. So good things happened. Things still happened over the two years. I just wasn't so, I didn't put the pressure on myself for more things to be happening. And I think it's so interesting in terms of like a comparison to food stuff too, you know, like breaking free from diet culture and like intentionally stepping away from it because I feel like a lot of people have this belief and I think there is there's some truth to this that you need a period of rest from like health and nutrition and anything to do with these things that are so wrapped up in diet culture in our society. Like you can't really have the pursuit of health or the pursuit of nutrition without diet culture on the, you know, the ground level. Like you can have that in the future once you've done all the work of unlearning and relearning and like building from the ground up. But like to start with, you really can't have those things. Right. And so I think intentionally stepping away from them, a lot of people are like, just like you said about, am I going to be a recluse forever? Like, am I going to, am I going to be like so unhealthy? Am I going to kill myself because I'm only eating the foods that were once forbidden or that I'm never going to eat a vegetable again or something like that. And it's like, No, actually, like you really have to trust that you will eventually probably want to eat something green another time in your life. I know. It's all about a trust, not only a trust in your body, which is essential, and you kind of have to trial by fire. You kind of have to like take a little leap and and try to trust before you can actually have trust. But it's it's also about a trust in phases that we need to go through different phases, not only with healing our eating, but every other part of our life too. I always fear that this is this always going to be the way that it is. And it never is. Things are allowed to kind of like heal themselves if you trust. Yeah. And things are always changing anyway, too. Like I, we were talking off mic about when was it when we, when we first talked on the podcast and we're like oh my god like I feel like such a different person from three or four years ago you know like just so much has happened and that wasn't even necessarily a time in my life I mean there there's just always stuff happening you know there's always changes it wasn't like a particularly change heavy time in my life because I can think of other periods of three or four years where like a million things happened that were you know I was living in a completely new place or I was with a completely different partner or like whatever you know and this was like a relatively stable phase of life and yet still I feel like a different person yeah It's really cool to look back. I mean, this is like actually inspiring me to look back. I had totally forgotten. Like I had totally forgotten about that first live interview that we had. It's I feel like I'm remembering parts of my life that I'd forgotten just by talking to you. But yeah, no, things are good. And the two years of rest, it was like a half funny joke because it sounds absurd to go on two years of rest, but it was also really a thing that I was really trying to do. And it 
And it was very healing. And I would recommend it to anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Especially I think when things feel, like you said, when you feel so much pressure to be achieving and productive and doing things like that is such pressure in our culture, you know, not and and that's sort of the analog of diet culture, I think, in in life in general. Yeah. And just to take a step back is very hard. I mean, I'm sure that was a tough decision to be like, I'm going to let go of all these ambitions that I have and stepping away from a career too, like the career, you know, saying that like, I'm not going to pursue acting anymore. must've been a hard decision to come to. And I've done that many times. (laughs) I actually did that the first time when I first decided to heal my relationship with food. Well, you know, I had decided to heal my relationship with food many times, but the fuck it diet version of that, like the one that actually worked that was when I said, you know, I, I don't think I can do both at the same time. And so that was like a temporary time of, so I've sort of flirted with, with leaving many times, which, which helped because I, you know, I know that it, it doesn't, nothing has to be permanent, but it is, a, it was a big thing. It was a big shift that I, that took a lot of time for me to be ready to say, you know what? Luckily, I have other creative pursuits that do fulfill me. So that made it easier too. knowing that I had writing and and the fuck a diet in general, the the website and everything. So, yeah, that does help a lot. I'm curious, actually, because I mean, these episodes we did were so long ago. It was like episode 60 and episode 48. 48 was the first one we did. So, you know, I don't think probably a lot of listeners listening now, maybe they've heard them, but like ages ago, or maybe they haven't heard them yet. And so would love to have you tell anyone who's listening who hasn't heard of you and your work, like what the fuck a diet is and just sort of the general concept and how, how it evolved to where it is now. Yes. All right. So the fuck it diet is essentially intuitive eating. But because I and so many people turn intuitive eating into a diet when if you don't have the right, you know, help and and guides to really (laughs) inspire you to uh, and teach you how important it is to leave all of our stress over weight and all of our beliefs about weight and all of our beliefs that intuitive eating is just a way to to eat what you want, but not eat a lot of food, because that's what I thought it was when I when I first heard about it when I was 18. I was like, oh, great. Okay, I get it. So if I just listen really hard to my appetite, I just I won't I won't be hungry for too much food and I'll I'll start craving really healthy foods like that's essentially what I thought it was. So many people I'm sure have that same experience. Yeah. And then when it wasn't, when I, when I did crave the whole brownie and not just the brownie, I was, I know (laughs) I was so disappointed in myself. And I, and that led to, that was just as dysfunctional of a relationship with food as before. So it took a really long time. It took a lot more dieting, many, many more years of dieting and many more years of thinking I was intuitive eating before I realized that at the core of my relationship with food was my relationship with weight, that all of my attempts to heal my eating just didn't work and would never work because I was always, I genuinely believed as we're all taught to believe that eating the smallest amount possible and being the smallest I could be was the most responsible thing I could do. So I started writing 
about my journey and my research and all of the like mini epiphanies I was having about eating. And I called the website, the fuck it diet. And I had a student pseudonym. I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't want anyone in my life to know about it because I was just figuring it out myself. But my revelations seemed pretty epic to me. And I didn't realize at the time that there was a whole world because I thought, I thought that intuitive eating was what I made it before. I was like, oh, intuitive eating is still a diet. Of course, now I know that if you do it right, it's not, it's meant to be what the fuck a diet is. But I, I needed a voice that was telling me I needed what I was writing. Essentially, I was writing something that felt more radical and it was helping me to get past all of my stress over food and food rules. And I, I was very, very orthorexic and I was really, I actually was coming off of paleo. So I still had all that fear of gluten. And so the fuck it diet started as me writing about my journey, healing my relationship with food and all of the research into why dieting actually isn't good for you and all the things that it can do to your metabolism and your appetite. Um, But soon after that, I would say once I really started having workshops and connecting with the people who were reading what I was writing, it became really clear to me that the emotional part of the journey was actually the harder part. And ever since then, I've been figuring out not only for myself, but also how to help explain the emotional part of the journey and the mental part of the journey, all the beliefs that I keep talking about and all of the emotions and sort of our fear of being embodied and feeling what it feels like in our bodies. It's become really clear that that's also a piece of this puzzle. And actually the other thing I did in these past two years was or three years was become a certified yoga teacher. <laughs> and I don't teach, you know, vinyasa classes, but the the rest piece and the breathing piece and the slowing down piece and the willingness to feel what it feels like to be alive and to be human. I found that that's actually a really parallel part of healing your relationship with food and and healing your relationship with weight. So that's become a big way that I talk about this and that I write about this and teach about um, the fuck a diet in general is not only the science and the the physical piece that has to do with our eating and like what we physically put in our bodies, but also our willingness and ability to to feel and inhabit our bodies. That is so important. And I think that's that really is the core of it for so many people is like a disconnection from their body perpetuated by or instigated by diet culture, right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes that disconnection from our bodies happens from trauma. Sometimes it happens from like food insecurity, which is a form of trauma or other things can disconnect us from our bodies too. But I think for a lot of us, diet culture is just one of those things. And diet culture is a form of trauma too. Let's be real. But like, it is. It's, you know, <laughs> it's like the, all of these forms of trauma can disconnect us from our bodies and the journey back to embodiment, I think it, yeah, you can't really have a journey back to intuitive eating without going through embodiment, without going through body acceptance or at least body neutrality, making some sort of pact or peace with your body to, in order to further the the relationship with food part. And not just conceptually. I mean, 
see like it ha- it has to start conceptually of understanding oh i'm not i'm not embodied i'm not inhabiting my body but the actual the the actual feeling part like the part where people are like okay so, but what do i do like how do i embody and and i think that's essentially the part that's it the i don't know if you have found this and i don't know how your book your book is structured, but in writing my book, I struggled so much with the order to teach things in, the order to explain things in. And because really the one thing triggers the next, it all has to happen at the same time. It's not a linear process at all. The emotional life affects the way that we eat, the way we eat affects how embodied we're able to be. If we're starving, it's it's really difficult to be embodied because it's actually like painful in your body. Um, and it's really difficult to be embodied if you have any sort of pain or emotional pain or trauma. But that was that's just like a little sidebar with, like I say, that's the next step, but it's not. It, it's all happening at the same time. It's all just as important as the next. So, but that's become a big way of, of how I kind of look at this journey and and, and also how I explain it. Yeah, I have I have such a hard time too with like the structuring piece because I mean my book the first half I sort of had a structure already because it's like about how diet culture like steals all these different parts of your life and so that right. was like easy to that's put together easier. but like that's way easier yeah. the first part is the why so, but oh it's so how. easy but the how, the how is- so much harder. Oh, so much harder. And yeah, like, how do you, you know, I had like, what, five chapters to do it in or something for the second half. So then it's like, well, okay, what we're talking about food, we're talking about body, we're talking about, like, relationship to health and wellness, relationship to movement, relationship to like other people in your life and like setting boundaries and getting angry and like all the feelings that you're having to deal with. It's like, ah, there's so much. There's so much. I know. Believe me, totally get it. If it's hard to teach it, it's hard to do it. <laughs> you know, it's yes. all happening. It's just, it's it's a lot for people to have to sort through. And it's also a lot for us to figure out what the best order to introduce it all in is. Yeah, I'm curious how you sort of went about that with your book and with your your courses. Like, how do you integrate those things? And I'm also really curious, sidebar, to hear about like the yoga piece because yoga is such a great practice for embodiment, but also like so full of diet culture in oh so many God, ways. So full of diet wow. culture. I've had to even unfollow one of the people who trained me because he's now like super, like super dogmatic. It's like the most cultish thing I've ever. And he's like vegan, but like he says a lot, he like, he talks out of two sides of his mouth. Anyway, it was a, it was a minefield to, to get through. But I think the the core of yoga is, it's not diet culture, but it, in our culture, it is now, it is fully steeped in diet culture. So it's tricky, tricky, tricky. Yeah, it's a tough place to be, especially with, yeah, how yoga has gotten translated in our culture, which is basically just, it's fitness. It's fitness. It's shiny, beautiful people it's drinking wellness. Mm-hmm. showing their beautiful arms, doing headstands. It's like, it's aspirational. Um like BS essentially, especially on Instagram. And, but the core of yoga is, can be such a beautiful thing, but like all spiritual practices, I think it can get kind of twisted really easily and it can take advantage of people and people's insecurities and people's desire to fit in and be safe. And so just being super aware of that 
for anyone, you know, looking for a nice safe yoga teacher or yoga class. Um, there are wonderful ones out there, but it is very tricky. It's very yeah, and I think if you find one that that sort of pushes any sort of eating agenda or pushes a way of being in your body that feels like diet culture, that feels like going to the gym or that's competitive in any way or makes you feel competitive, like that probably isn't the right yoga teacher for you. That probably isn't the right yoga studio because that is very much how diet culture shows up in the yoga world. I mean, I, I have this term, the wellness diet for like the way that diet culture has now cloaked itself as wellness and health. And, you know, it's, it's all about clean eating. It's all about yoga and like spirituality. And it's all about feeling good, Chris. It's just yeah. good. <laughs> it's not a diet. This is just to feel good. This is a lifestyle change. Yeah. And these are the only things that you can eat, but it's like uh, not but like you don't have to, but like you do. Yeah, you don't have to, but like you'll feel so much better and actually look so much better. Which is like what it all comes back to. Exactly. Exactly. I know. But yeah, so I mean, I think the the real practices of it, the real idea of being in your body and like connecting between your mind and your body is a beautiful thing. But yeah, the way that it gets twisted in service of all the existing power structures in our society is just super fucked up. Exactly. Yeah, it's a shame. It's a big shame. So how have you kind of translated that then with the fuck it diet? Like how have you brought in what you've learned in yoga training to your work? I'm really interested in starting the conversation with people about feeling. And then the question is, okay, so how like people feel so disconnected from their body. And I feel like this has been a way to bridge the gap in a way that is kind of palatable to people because they understand the concept of, okay, yoga, breathing. And I have always been searching for tools to help people to access their emotions and to begin to realize that feeling emotions isn't going to destroy you. It's again, I, I really do compare this. I'm sort of talking in circles, but I do compare this to our relationship to hunger. It's the same thing with hunger. We assume that there's something wrong with us if we're hungry and if we can just ignore it and push it down and do things to suppress our appetite, that it'll go away and we just need to control it. And then of course, we're suppressing a survival. Hunger is a survival mechanism and we're suppressing it. And eventually it's going to override all your attempts to control it. And the same thing happens with emotions. And the way that we stop feeling emotions is by kind of disconnecting from our body. And it's, it can be a, an important coping mechanism for trauma, but long-term, the way to heal that is to begin to come back down and to feel the discomfort and move through the discomfort. And just like hunger, we're afraid that if we start to feel like if if we allow our hunger, it's just going to take over and we're never going to stop eating. And that's a very similar fear that we have to, to feeling, to feeling pain, to feeling sadness, to feeling anger. We're afraid that if we allow ourselves to feel and honor it, that it's going to take over and it's going to become who we are. And in reality, it's that all emotions are able to pass when we feel and honor them. And so really just the simple, the simplest, I've just always been searching for the simplest and most straightforward tools to give people to begin to bridge that gap. And, and I've trained in a couple of different kind of more out there things. And I, 
you know, I love woo woo things, but at the end of the day, I really wanted it to be super straightforward and super DIY and something that everyone felt like they could do and and wasn't like super out there. And yoga, though yoga can get super woo woo, it's also really body based and really simple and straightforward and based on breath, breath. I was going to say breath, (laughs) (laughs) breath, based on breath and stretching and feeling what it feels like in your body, even if it's uncomfortable and sitting with that. And so that is sort of one of the ways that I bridge the gap, but I, I don't teach vinyasa, as I said, or any sort of like formal yoga class. I really have sort of just adapted the pieces that I feel like can help get people back in touch with their bodies in a really simple, quick way. And so that's how I've been using it so far. I think that's that's so important too because we were talking about how when people how it's very similar to hunger when you're disconnected from your emotions you feel like they're going to engulf you if you let them back in the same way that when you're disconnected from your hunger you've been working to suppress it for years it feels like it's going to engulf you and just be like bottomless if you let it back in and I think that the reality is like it sometimes is at first and it does feel that way it completely feels that way and understanding why people have that fear. That's what they've experienced. And it, it seems to be almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're like, yep, I told you I was going to like eat everything in my kitchen. I really can't trust myself. Or I like cried for a whole day. Like I need to go back to not feeling. But that's that's the body kind of overcorrecting. And we need to trust that that process. And that's not easy to do. It's not easy at all. But hopefully with enough people guiding you through and enough people talking about their experiences. You can understand that you're not the only person going through this. Right. And having the right support and the practices, like you said, with yoga, I feel like yoga is helpful in that it gives a little bit, you know, I feel like with good yoga teachers or just like supportive yoga, a yoga community, you sort of like, you can't stay in the hardest part of it for too long you know like a yoga teacher that is really steeped in diet culture and that is not good might push you so far that you do end up with an injury or like staying in a in a painful place in your body and having emotional repercussions because of that but I feel like a like a good teacher can sort of tell like okay let's back it off or let's add you know some kind of mobility aid type of thing like let's put a block under your hip for this or whatever yes exactly that was like one of the other things that I really loved about one of my teachers, <laughs> so focused on alignment for the purpose of supporting your body, supporting your joints. The purpose of strength wasn't to look awesome. It was to support your body and to support flexibility. It was just like a beautiful way of looking at strength and flexibility. And my problem actually is that I'm over flexible and I didn't really understand how important it was to to engage muscles just to like protect my joints, but also the way of looking at it that trying to like kind of force your body into a more impressive looking version of the pose will injure you if you, it like that it's not about the way it looks. Yoga is not supposed to be about the way it looks. And that is very obvious to some people, but it also doesn't seem that way when it's, when, you know, especially like Instagram culture and 
It's just, yeah, uh, there were a lot of things in there in, in my training where I was like, yes, it's not about how you look in the pose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, people need to hear that because I think the idea that's out there now about yoga is this like skinny, bendy person on Instagram, usually white, you know, definitely thin, able-bodied, cisgender, all the things doing some impossible looking pose. And if you think that's what yoga is, then of course it doesn't feel like it's accessible or for everyone you know it feels very exclusive exactly and then the other have you ever heard of yoga nidra oh yes i love yoga nidra yes so when we sort of touched on that that i was like i want to do my book report on that <laughs> like, that was that was my like major <laughs> and so that's something that i've also incorporated into some of my programs and some of the ways that i i I begin to guide people back into their bodies and very in line with my two years of rest and very in line with me talking about how so many of us are resistant to rest and need it. Yeah, I fall asleep every time I do yoga nidra. And it, I, I've heard that that's kind of the point of it, right? That it's like supposed to be about this deep rest. Well, what I've, a couple of different things. One is if you fall asleep, you needed to fall asleep. Like sleep was your most important kind of activity at that time, but also that you still are listening and you're still kind of going through, you could, they did this experiment. One of the, I think the person who created yoga nidra found that people, he actually created it or something because he learned something in his sleep that he didn't consciously learn, but then he just knew it anyway. So yeah, so you're benefiting from it. Sleep is amazing. Sleep Sleep can change lives. <laughs> it is my favorite form of self-care for sure. Yes, it is. And I feel like in a way, the fuck it diet or the way that I have distilled the fuck it diet is down to these really obvious and basic ways to take care of yourself. And it's you need to eat food and you need to rest. And yes, we need lots of other things, but those are two really, really important, um, basic tenets of staying alive and, and staying well. And if we're not doing either of those things, you know, eventually something's going to give, you know, or something's got to give. So just starting there. And yes, it's, there's way more that goes into your relationship with food and your relationship with your body and self-care, but you can ask yourself, am I eating enough? And am I sleeping enough? And if one of those, if, you know, take care of those things, if, if you're not, basically. That's such good advice, because I think in diet culture, it's all about the opposite. It's all about not eating enough and moving your body too much or being overactive in a million ways, like being hyper productive and, you know, the pressure to the pressure to be productive, like we were talking about. So like having permission and having someone say like, hey, you need to actually eat enough and you need to rest and those things are non-negotiable parts of self-care is really huge yeah and that exercise is rest dependent like exercise is so good for you once you're out of a you know more dire starvation famine mode but exercise is so good for you if you've eaten enough and if you're rested enough and if you're not it's actually probably going to stress your body out more than it's going to help it. Yes. 
Absolutely. And I don't think people get that in our culture. I think it's there's just this constant pressure to do more and more and more physically. And I think even I used to definitely struggle with overexercise and I had a problem with even understanding what is enough rest and what is enough food, you know, because yeah. I was oh, so, yeah. so caught up in diet culture at the time and orthorexia that it was like, oh, I can eat just like veggies with a little oil or whatever. You know, it was like this very warped sense of what even a meal was or what rest really looked like. And sometimes like, I mean, you say two years of rest, it's like that actually is sometimes what people need. You know, it's like months or years away from intentional exercise in order to heal their relationship with it. Oh, yeah. And I actually, weirdly enough, I have not been in a gym <laughs> since I started the fuck a diet, which is seven years ago. Yeah. Weirdly, weirdly, tomorrow I'm meeting my friend at a gym because I want to try the weight machines and I want to do it with her. Isn't that bizarre? It's taken seven years for me to be like, maybe I want to see if I like weight machines. Like I feel like being strong. <laughs> I've had a similar experience where I've not stepped foot in a gym. Well, maybe stepped foot. I don't remember, but I haven't like gone to a gym for the purposes of using out. it. Yeah. Right. Maybe I've used the bathroom. <laughs> <Right>. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it was it was seven years, actually, the last time I thought about it, which maybe was a couple years ago. So it might be like nine years at this point or something. But it's like, yeah, I don't miss it whatsoever. I mean, I might regret it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just depends on if it feels kind of like it just depends on if it feels too kind of diety, diet mm -hmm. culture. It, it just depends on my experience. But yeah, I think it's when you've had enough time away from it and you come back to it, maybe you can have a totally different relationship with it. And using something for strength building purposes where it's like, yeah, I need to strengthen these muscles so that I don't fuck up my joints or whatever, like might be a good use for it. But I think, yeah, anyone listening who's like had an issue with the gym before. We give you permission to stay away for years or forever yes, because yes. you can move your body in a million fun, life-affirming ways that do not involve the gym. Yes, absolutely. And there are so much more free from diet culture from the ground up. I mean, of course, a diet culture can get a hold of anything, like even <laughs> yoga, like everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I had so I, I was definitely very compulsive about yoga as well in my compulsive exercise days. So oh, yes, I remember I sprained my ankle in college and I was I would hobble to the longest yoga class I could find every day while I wasn't able to run. I, I yeah, dark times. <laughs> Totally. Dark times. And so many of us have gone through those because of what our culture does to us. It's just sad to think that so many of us have put ourselves through that, you know, exercising while injured. Oh, my God. And the saddest part, I mean, the, the like at the core of it, like the part that breaks my heart the most is that we were just trying to be responsible. Like we even if part of us knew maybe this is going too far, like at the core of it, we heard what we needed to do to be good members of society who cared about our health and our lives. And we wanted to be responsible. And it's just sad. <laughs> it's just really heartbreaking to look back. But thankfully, there is there is another way. And it is way better. It is way better. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I love the subtitle of your book is eating should be easy. And I just love that because it should. And like, that is, you know, fundamentally, like that is 
our birthright is for eating, eating to be easy. And all kinds of shit comes in and takes it away, like food insecurity, diet culture, both of those things combined, which happens for people a lot other forms of trauma and stuff like that can interfere. But like, I think at the fundamental level, like as a human right, eating really should be easy. And there's so much that we learn. Like you said, we learn this idea of like, to be a responsible member of society, you have to like not eat basically. And it's compounded when you're in a larger body. Then it's like, you have to not eat and starve yourself and show everybody around you that you're doing that. That you're trying. Yeah. yeah that like, you know that you need to work harder or whatever. Right. Yeah. I love this idea of just being able to bring it back to the ease that we all are meant to have with food. And I think that that's something that I, I always try to convey to people because I think that dieters, at least, especially when I was a dieter, and I feel like the people who are just hearing about intuitive eating they really don't believe that it's possible for eating to be easy. And I know that for myself, I, I truly, truly believed and experienced. So I experienced that I was a food addict. I experienced years and years of food fixation. And so I believed that it would never, ever, ever be easy for me, that I would never stop obsessing or fixating over food, that I would never not want to eat everything in my entire house, that I would be able to trust my hunger, that I wouldn't have to overthink when to stop eating or any of those things. I, I, I genuinely did not believe that it was possible for me. It's like that that overcompensation thing, right? That sort of that idea of like, you know, you pull the pendulum so far one direction by restricting that, of course, it's going to swing wildly in the other direction. And then you're like, see, I can't do it. I'm not. It can't be easy for me because look at how far it swings. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's totally understandable. I mean, I totally get why people are stuck in, in the yo-yo, in the diet binge cycle for years on end, because it seems to... It seems to prove your appetite seems to prove to you over and over and over again that you are a monster around food. And we're just not seeing that the dieting is perpetuating it and making it worse and worse and worse. And I, I mean, I genuinely couldn't have imagined the relationship with food that I have now. I just, I couldn't even, <laughs> I couldn't even imagine what it would be like. I, I sort of like knew, oh, wouldn't it be nice to not feel addicted to food and to not have a food obsession. And to, I remember people would be like, Oh, I, I forgot to eat breakfast. And I'd be like, what? Yeah, I thought they were, I was like, you're lying. Nobody forgets to eat breakfast. It just was like a whole other world to me. And just the idea that eating could be easy, that you could just trust and eat what you were hungry for and eat what was there and, and not overthink it and, and have more ease with, but your actual appetite, because that's another thing that's changed. I truly, I mean, like voracious hunger. And I, of course I still get hungry. Like I feel hunger and I, you know, if I don't eat for a long time, I'm very hungry, but it all feels a lot more manageable. It feels there's a deep trust, not only in my, in my mind, but also in my body at this point that I will be fed and I will be fed as much as I want and need. And it's truly become easy. And I want to be able to communicate that to people who don't believe that, that it can be, that it really truly can be, even if you feel like you've been a food addict for your entire life or obsessed with food for your entire life. And that is hard. Like, I, I do think I sometimes look at my subtitle and I'm like, oh, there are going to be people who are like, no, it isn't. No, it can't be. 
but that's just the nature of the beast that there are going to be plenty of people who don't want to hear what we have to say. And those are the people who are caught up in diet culture and maybe either benefiting from it currently or financially have a stake in it or whatever it is, right? But I know. And the people who, you know, are just stuck in it for the time being, all we can do is plant a seed, you know? But yeah, eating should be easy and eating can be easy. And just, I mean, like I've become, I've become the person who forgets to eat a meal. And then of course I'm annoyed because I'm hungry and I'm like, oh man, like, I don't think, again, to say that, like, I don't want to glorify that because it's not better to forget to eat, but it is a totally different way of relating to food that I am, that I'm trusting enough to forget to eat if you know what I mean. Right. Totally. And then you're, then you're super hungry on the flip side and then you, and you make up eat. For it. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. It's not like I forget to eat like, cause I think the, the sort of diet version of intuitive eating is like, oh yeah, you'll become this ethereal creature who forgets to eat. And when you do eat, it's all like kale and you know, there's nary a carb in sight or whatever. And like, it's just bullshit. And it's not that it's just that like maybe sometimes you do forget to eat or you get too busy and you work through lunch and you're like oh shit I'm now it's four o'clock and I'm starving or whatever exactly. but you then you eat because it, that's intuitive eating too uh-huh and you mm, probably eat a lot more as you should as you need yeah and your body will tell you your body will be probably ravenous on the flip side of that and then you'll eat more and maybe be a little bit uncomfortable afterwards or maybe not. And that's okay too. And it's totally fine. The other thing that I didn't trust would happen for me is that I would, the concept that you could stop eating just because you weren't hungry anymore felt like something that I would have to force. That I would have to say, oh man, I'm not hungry anymore. I, sh I should really stop eating. But what I've, ex what I experience more often than that is me just being like, oh, I'm done. And it's like, I, there's no overthinking. There's no, oh, but I really, and sometimes I am like, I'm full, but I just like really want the rest of this. And that's a non-issue too. But more often than not, if I get full in the middle of eating a plate of food, it is no effort to stop. I, I sometimes accidentally stop. And that's another thing I want to be able to convey that it, it doesn't have to be about micromanaging it and it shouldn't be about micromanaging it and that it can, that it will happen on its own and that your body will do it on its own. And if you want to eat more than a plate of food and you want to go back for seconds, that's okay too. It's like exactly. not... And that happens just as often too. <laughs> right. And then I'll, maybe I'll stop before I finish that or maybe not, but it's, it varies with my hunger but if I do happen to get full, it's not a big to do to force myself to stop. That was another thing I thought about intuitive eating that I had to be like paying so close attention to every single bite, every single level of hunger, and that it had to be constantly vigilant about like exactly the perfect place to stop. And that was like part of me turning it into a diet. I was like constantly afraid I was going to overshoot my hunger level for that particular meal. Right. I know. I tell people don't even focus on fullness. Like don't even worry about that. I feel like fullness is like the biggest trap in intuitive eating when people are first starting out with it because they're like paying exquisite attention to their fullness level and trying to be like, am I full yet? Am I full yet? Am I full yet? And like totally overthinking it. And same with hunger too, being like, am I hungry yet? Am I hungry yet? And like, you know, 
trying to not eat until they're at some like perfect level of hunger. But I think with enough attention to hunger to where you're like, oh, I get that I'm thinking about food right now because I'm hungry. And maybe if I go and get some food right now, that'll result in me feeling better and less like low blood sugar crashy and more satisfied and sort of more able to just move on with my day. So I'm going to do that, you know, so I feel like focusing on hunger to that effect to the sort of towards the end of having enough and like satisfying yourself is great. But focusing on fullness kind of at all, I think is super problematic because I feel like when you focus enough on hunger that you're able to satisfy yourself consistently and like get your needs met, fullness nine times out of 10 tends to fall into place over time. It does. It really does. And that's, that's the thing that would have been so hard for me to believe, I think, that your hunger hormone levels will take care of that part for you once you kind of let go of your micromanaging of it. And it doesn't have to be such a precious thing. It can, you can just sort of like, eat. <laughs> yes. I know. I it's funny like in my disordered eating days I also felt like that's never going to be possible for me. Like I have to pay so much attention because if I don't I'm just going to the fear was always like I'm going to just gain so much weight, right? That's always the fucking fear. Like but it's kind of wild because, you know, that was like about a 10-year period or so. But before that, I had been an intuitive eater my entire life. I had so much privilege in that because thin privilege kept anyone from interfering in how much I ate. And like financial privilege helped me always have enough food available. And so I was just like, la la la, like preserved my intuitive eating status from child, you know, babyhood all the way up until I was like 19 or 20. So it's like so wild that I just forgot that, you know, and that the diet culture just completely severed that memory that was not available to me anymore. And only after I was able to had some experiences that really forced me to say like this dieting thing just isn't working anymore and was able to come and discover the book intuitive eating and came back to intuitive eating that I was like, oh, right. Like I know how to do this. I did this all the way, like until I was 19 or 20. I, I get it. But it's wild to me how how much how quickly you forgot yeah it just fades because diet culture is always there like even though I was an intuitive eater all that time growing up I also had the diet culture beliefs swirling around me and sort of like planting their seeds in my head so like once those seeds were watered it was just like boom forest of diet culture clouding out every intuitive eating memory that I had yeah that happened to me too really quickly as a teenager but the interesting thing when I look back is that I actually was a childhood binge eater, but not because of weight. I was a genetically thin child. I had thin privilege, still do. But I, my mom was a health nut and I, I believed that I was denied food. So I would binge on snacks every chance that I got because it felt like the last chance, which is really fascinating because it means that just mentally, like I was not truly denied calories or nutrients, but just mentally, I felt denied and it changed my relationship with food. Yeah. That mental deprivation. Mental deprivation was enough to do it and to essentially turn me into a binge eater. And so I never thought about weight as a child, but I did always think that I 
had like a food addiction and it was just kind of funny to me and funny to like my friends. Cause I was this like tiny, tiny little thing, like eating way more food than everybody else. But I, in the back of my mind, I was like, wow, this is crazy. Like I'm really like addicted to food and I did fixate on it. And my brother and I both were like obsessed with like getting people to give us snacks and then eating as much as we could. And that's not, that's not like very strange for children to like be, you know, to like want snacks, but we were definitely extra obsessed. So that is good news because it means that I I was never a normal eater really. And I am now. So even if you never, if you can't remember a time when you were normal with food, when you were easy with food, if you were dieting young or had a similar experience to me or food deprivation, like true food deprivation that I like thought I had, but didn't have, it is possible. It is still possible. Your body still knows how to eat. I think that's such a beautiful lesson to take from that, you know, that really anybody, anybody can come back to the intuitive eating that we were born with. And I think it's so interesting too, this idea of mental deprivation, because that is so real. And I think your story like illustrates that so well, because as a little kid, you don't really think about is this physical or mental deprivation, you just feel deprived, like whatever it is that's creating it, you just feel that deprivation. And I feel like I work with clients now who are so almost like hard on themselves about, well, is this really physical? Is this like, am I actually hungry or am I just mentally deprived? If if it's mental deprivation, then it's somehow like bad or worse or that, you know, it doesn't count or something like that. If they're eating because they're mentally deprived, that like there's something wrong with them versus like if they're physically deprived, they can at least sort of understand that. And it's like, no, both of them affect your relationship with food so profoundly and they both affect your like your hormones and yes. like it can it can the mind and the body are so connected it can jog that actual hormonal deprivation cycle without any physical deprivation yes absolutely and th- and so it does feel exactly the same as if you were physically deprived and yet you know it's coming from a different place which is i mean basically all of that is diet culture right the sort of health nut approach to food where it's like these foods are good these foods are bad you can have these you can't have these that's the same thing as you need to count calories or restrict the amount of food you eat or whatever it's coming from that same belief system it's it's coming from the same place and it has the same effects on your body and the same effects on creating a, a cycle of binge restrict as well yes Absolutely. Just emotional deprivation or mental deprivation can lead to binging too. Yeah. And it does. Yeah. I think people need to know that because it's really, I see too many people, sadly, you know, especially sometimes folks in larger bodies who've been told, well, you're in a larger body. So that means you eat too much. Right. And they've internalized that message. Then it's like, well, I can't possibly be deprived because I'm in a larger body and yet I'm binging. So what's up with that? And it's like, well, actually, you can. Like, actually, you are deprived no matter what your body size is, right? Yeah. And almost, I mean, I think oftentimes, like, you know, not across the board, certainly, because everybody's diet culture manifests in particular ways for particular families and particular people. But I think in a general sense, probably the larger your body size actually is, the more deprived you are because of this culture that we live in. Yes. Even just the guilt alone. But also physically, because we don't even realize how we're putting our, you know, 
ourselves on diets over and over and over. Yeah. And those things are so intertwined, like maybe not, you know, for a little kid whose mom is making the decisions about food, it's maybe mostly mental. But like once you're an adult, once you are making your own food decisions, those things get so intertwined where it's like you're you're thinking that you should avoid particular foods, but you're also kind of skimping on the amount that you serve yourself because you right. think that you're not supposed to eat such a large, quote unquote, large portion or whatever. It's all wrapped up in... It's insidious. It's like you don't realize it's happening, but it is kind of running the show. And these little subtle food rules that we pick up from diet culture and whatever stuff we read on, you know, Instagram or blogs or whatever diets that we've had in the past that we have taken little parts of and continued on with that we don't even realize that came from that diet we did when we were 12 or whatever. It's all there. Yeah. I love that you break down in your book in defense of particular types of food, like in defense of shitty food is one section, right? Yeah. And that's about, that's emotional. That's for orthorexics, essentially, because so basically I can kind of explain the structure of the book and then the section that that's in. But just like we both discussed, the first part is why, why are we dysfunctional with food? Why don't diets work? Why is our relationship with weight getting in the way? Why is this happening to us in the first place? And then the second part of the book, which is broken down into even smaller sections, is how, how to heal. How do we do this? How do we get away from dieting? How do we do the fuck a diet? Which is intuitive eating, but also all of the emotional things that I've been talking about. And so the first section is the physical section. And that's all about what you physically eat, how you physically rest or don't rest. And basically in that section, it's, it does a lot of myth busting about the way that you eat. So I just like, we also talked about like, oh, what order to put things in? Like, I just, I was like, okay, so essentially for the rest of this book, I'm going to be addressing resistance and I just have to figure out how to address it in a way that makes some sort of sense while also telling people that you might want to read the book twice because it's all going to be happening at the same time. So I essentially talk about this, the, this obsession with stopping points and this fear of hunger and our resistance there. And then in the same section, I talk about specific fear and beliefs about different kinds of food. And so one of them is in defense of carbs and sugar. They need so much defending these days. Oh my God, so much, so much. I mean, as someone, I also was diagnosed with PCOS in high school, which also was a part of my, you know, fear of food and orthorexia and belief that I had to be eating a certain way. And I do believe that PCOS is an umbrella term and like everyone has a slightly different thing going on. But my, I just believed in my core that sugar was bad for me and going to like, it was just going to be a big spiral. And yeah, there's so honestly, Christy, I am really bad at, I call it, I say that I have data amnesia. Like I have read all of the science on everything. And then when I'm actually asked to recall it in specifics, like I'm really good at the broad swaths when I'm talking about it. But I have one of the big pieces of my editing puzzle was, okay, so you're making some pretty big claims here, Caroline. Can you back all of this up? And so there's lots and lots and lots of science and studies in there. But I... I talk about people's obsession with candida and their fear that, oh my God, I know. 
And just like, there's, there's a lot of myth busting in there that even I'm happy to have in the book because I'm like, I know it's true, but I really need to like get my studies together. Yeah. Myth busting is so important too. I think for people to just break down those lingering, the lingering resistance, like you said, it's like good to have that. Exactly. And it's all stuff that I had, all the resistance that I had too. This belief that I was truly being irresponsible to eat carbs or to eat sugar. So there's in defense of carbs and sugar, there's in defense of salt, which is very exciting. In defense of, I think it's decadent food, delicious and decadent food. And in there, I talk about fat and I talk about dairy. And I, so all of these foods, there are many, you know, there are lots of ways that it supports our health. And of course, people have individual, you know, people do have food allergies. So I would never say, no, dairy is good for you if you're allergic to dairy. But for most of us, all of these foods are really good for our gut, really good for our immune system and do lots of amazing things that only my book can tell you because I have data. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then the other one is in defense of shitty food and shitty food is in quotes because a lot of people's last remaining resistance is, okay, so I get it. I get why I need to eat more food. I get why I need calories. I get it. I get that I need to refeed. I even get that I need to gain weight. But what about objectively shitty food, like fake food. And I don't even define it in the book because I I try to be super careful about not putting ideas in people's heads. I don't want to tell people what I w- would define that as because that's not the point. The point is our fear of whatever we consider to be shitty food, depending on whatever diets we've been on or whatever we've heard or read on the news, essentially, is giving that food so much more power than it deserves. We're so afraid that these foods have these addictive qualities and that they're just, you know, like they're the problem, that they're the reason that we have no control over food. And it's just not true. It's the dieting. It's that state that we get into. And so I call it, it's almost like cognitive behavioral therapy for orthorexics to eat the food that you're afraid of and prove to yourself that you're not going to die from eating that food and dep- and the more you can do that and and you don't like like I don't even want to eat McDonald's but if all I could eat was McDonald's and I was petrified of it like what good would that do me so it's all about pushing you don't have to eat food that you don't like that you think is shitty but the fear of it the fear that it's going to like corrode you from the inside just isn't true and it isn't helpful in the big picture We want to be able to go to restaurants and not know what oils they put in our food and be able to just eat it and enjoy it anyway. It just doesn't serve you to be afraid of the minutiae. And so to really to push past that and the defense of it is whether you can even like defend it on a, you know, health level, it's about quality of life. It's about being able to just eat and move on with your life. Which actually is on a health level, too, when yes. you think about health in a truly global sense, right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's like your mental health. Yeah. Stress. I mean, the nocebo effect of where you just think a food is bad for you and therefore you feel bad when you eat it. I have this crazy neighbor who <laughs> I've been in a fight with over our trellis wall that she doesn't want me to grow vines on. And she, and I've heard from other neighbors that she's crazy and has problems with everyone. And she like baked me this kugel, this, I I don't know. I think that's how you pronounce it. I was afraid. I I was like half afraid. I was like, 
she's crazy. What if she poisoned it? And then I forgot that I thought that. And I like ate a couple pieces later that night. And then I remembered and I immediately felt sick. Like I genuinely, I was like, oh my God, I've been poisoned. <laughs> and, and then I was like, I probably haven't been. This is probably totally psychomatic. <laughs> and I was fine, of course. It wasn't poison. But like even just the little thought that I that I've eaten something or, or, or that I'm sick, like can make you feel that way. I mean, it really, again, your mind and your body are very, very connected. So yeah. So the, the fear of food and the fear of eating certain foods will never, ever do you any good. And then I talk about actual diet food, which I do consider to be shitty, even though I would never dream of telling somebody that they shouldn't eat whatever food has been created in a lab to and marketed to you as like a zero calorie thing. But that's the food that's shitty. That's the food that's shitty and fake and mark like all just marketing. I never want to like fear monger about health, but like diet food is the only shitty food that there is, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think it's shitty too on like a moral level because yeah. it's it's playing into this oppressive system, right? It's a it's a tool of oppression. It's a tool of diet culture. It's meant to make people's, you know, to shrink people's bodies, or at least it holds itself out as, uh, you know, promises that and gets people to buy it based on that false promise. And that's the shitty thing. That's I don't want any, I don't want any part of that kind of food. And yet, you know, there definitely is a case to be made for like making peace with diet Coke or whatever it is, because even that doesn't need to be off limits. It doesn't need to be off limits. But I do, I say a couple of times in the book, all I ask is that you get really honest with yourself about why you're doing the things you're doing and why you're eating the things that you're eating. And that's all that I ask, because if you genuinely love diet Coke, as I've definitely believed that I did at one time, <laughs> then, then go for it. But I do argue that a lot of people may still kind of be operating under some old beliefs about the kinds of treats they're allowed to have. Absolutely. I used to think I loved rice cakes. And I have not bought a rice cake in like nine years now, I think. It's like Same. ridiculous. Caramel coated rice cakes. Oh, yeah. I thought those were such a treat. And like, yeah. now, now I eat caramel, period. Like, <laughs> if I want that, I'll just or eat it. Or rice. Or actual <laughs> rice yes. that I also used to be afraid of. Oh, yes. Or actual cake instead of yeah. a rice cake. What yeah. about actual cake? <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot more available to us than we think when we're dieting. It's kind of amazing. Oh, my God. Caroline, this is such great stuff you're doing. I'm so excited for the book to come out. We're going to be running this, I think, the week that it does come out. So I think oh it's... God. Yeah. So it'll be, I think this comes out on a Monday and I think maybe your on sale date is a Tuesday or something. So when it's people so <laughs> hear this, they can either pre-order or just order your book. Yes. That's very exciting. Yes. So tell us where people can find out about it and learn more about you and everything you do. So you can come to the fuckitdiet.com, just exactly what it sounds like. And you can go, you can find all the information there, but you can also go straight to the fuckitdiet.com slash book for pre-order links or just regular order links. And yeah, I'm super excited. Yes, I'm pumped too. It's going to be amazing. I'm, I'm excited to see like all the press and every all the, you know, people's responses. 
We will see. We will see. And I'm really excited for yours as well. Do you know when yours is coming out? Yeah, it's going to be like holiday time or sort of New Year time of 2019, 2020. So like December 2019 is kind of a date as of now. But you know, TBD. That's exciting. It's really exciting. I really wish that mine could be holiday. There are enough people who are like, oh my God, yay, Mm -hmm. in time for the holidays. I'm like, no, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I wish. No, that's very fun. Yours is uh, the sort of new, initially we were talking about doing mine for like April of 2020 and then they moved it up, but they were saying like April is the new January kind of in terms of like people's diets for the summer kind of start then or the whole, you know, know like bikini bullshit yeah you're right that, so. it's also it's like in reaction to the new year new you and then it's also right before bikini season bullshit right exactly yeah so it's good it's well positioned in between those things to give people kind of a reprieve hopefully from all the the summertime body worries i really hope yeah i'm excited it's gonna be great well we'll put links to that in the show notes so people can find it and order your book or pre-order depending on the date and uh yeah thank you so much for coming back on the show it's a pleasure talking with you as always thank you for having me christy i'm so glad i got to reconnect with you me too So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Caroline Duner for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Sharing on one of the Apple platforms is really helpful because it brings us up in the podcast ranking so that more people discover us and so that we can continue to drown out the pro-diet voices and keep rising up in the health category. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. You can do that by going to christyharrison.com slash subscribe. That's christyharrison.com slash subscribe. If you're looking for some practical tips to help you get started on the anti-diet path, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, head over to christyharrison.com slash 190. That's christyharrison.com slash 190. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to make peace with food, break free from diet culture, and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. A big thanks to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, and to my Food Psych Programs team, including our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasik, and our transcript assistant, Kiara McClellan, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show for you every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble, and our theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Thank you.